Hello, welcome back to Running in Circles, the podcast that has crunched the numbers and isn't looking great for minutes played, and is definitely underperforming unexpected listeners. I'm joined as ever by my strike partner, Charlie Pisey. Hello, everyone. And we are delighted to say that this week we are joined by a guest. He is a, a giant in every sense of the word, <laughs> and the rugby editor at the St. Mary's Sports Gazette. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Bidwell. Hello, guys. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. No, mate. Thank you so much for joining us. We're, we're very excited to have you. Um, if you are enjoying what Alex has to say later on this pod, we would recommend you follow him on Twitter at, uh, at Bidwell underscore Alex, where he writes and tweets about all manner of, of good sporting stuff. And you can as ever find us at Running in Circles pod on Instagram, where we upload clips from the show, polls and uh, little else. So without further ado, <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> let's crack on with this week's most interesting sporting stories. So uh, what are we starting with, Chizen? Charlie's too formal. Charlie's too formal. Pisy's too informal. Chizy. Um, um, no, I love how I just rattled off about two and a half minutes of script there and get to <laughs> the very last word and call you Chizy. Um, oh, that's anyway. really thrown me off. Anyways, okay. The biggest story of the last week or so is probably Chris Wilder being sacked as Sheffield United manager. He's been there for five years, I believe. Um, Sheffield United, one of four clubs in England in that time to stick with one manager. I believe Jamie did the research on that one during this week. Um, well, yeah, it was, it was in response to one of these like, hilariously specific tweets. It was like, since Chris Wilder joined, like, only two clubs have won more games under one manager. Uh, and it turns out that like, only four teams have had one manager in that time. So yeah, he's, he's one of the country's longest serving managers for yeah, sure. And he's obviously done a brilliant job, got Sheffield United promoted from League One to Championship to Premier League, then obviously had a brilliant season, their first season in the Premier League. The wheels have come spectacularly off this season, though. For a long while, it looked like they were going to have the worst ever Premier League season. But they've managed to claw some pride back. But now, Wilder sacked. Seems like slightly strange timing to me. I mean, what do you think? Well, so the background to this apparently is that there's been like quarrelling all week about uh, a director of football being appointed for Sheffield United. And so Chris Wilder is clearly one of these old school English managers, which is literally abroad in like Spain and stuff. They refer to like a manager like Inglaterra because like this kind of all encompassing role. Uh, but to be honest, you look at their transfer activities since they came up to the Premier League. You have Rian Brewster, Ollie McBurney and Ramsdale who've been signed together for 60 million quid. And then you look at players like Osborne, Freeman, Robinson, Lowe, Bogle, Burke, who all came together to like almost 30 and like none of them are really particularly good yes you can't really blame Sheffield for wanting to bring in director of football Sander Burge as well for 20 odd million who's not set the world alight like he hasn't I think he's been good when he's played and he's been unlucky with injury this season but um the question I wanted to ask you guys is I don't think anyone's come away from the season thinking Chris Wilder's a bad manager so where next for Chris Wilder do we reckon that's a very good question um one thought I had was Newcastle. Yeah, I was maybe one of the clubs that gets relegated this year. Maybe somewhere like West Brom, after Sam Allardyce mm. leaves. I just want to talk about the the timing of it because it does seem slightly strange in that you know the, the, why sack him now. You'd either think sack him at the end of the season or sack him when something could have been done about it. It's too late to save them. Um, so if the plan was to sack him, I'm just surprised it didn't happen slightly earlier. Um, it just seems. A little, too little, too late. Not like any manager is going to come in and do anything now. Um, I just thought the timing was slightly odd. 
So a name that's being banded around is Paul Hackenbottom, who's now been made the interim boss. And I mean, in terms of what's the answer for Sheffield United, he is not it. Had a really shocking time at Leeds. Really, like he was immediately prior to Marcelo Bielsa. Do it, did an awful, awful job. Like Leeds fans have been very visibly laughing at the idea of him taking over Sheffield United this week. So I don't think he is the long-term answer, that's for sure. As much as those signings I listed previously have all been either poor to not good enough, they're all pretty much championship and lower Premier League signings. I mean, Chris Wilder came out a couple of weeks ago and said that their business plan has, or, or club model rather, has been to take the money they got by the best players in the championship and hope that's been good enough for the Prem. It hasn't. But when they go back down, I mean, you look at Bogle and Lowe, they both came from Derby, considered two of the best uh, young young fullbacks in the EFL. And you know, Ollie McBurney was, and, and Brian Brewster both looked much better signings. Uh, sorry, strikers in in the championship. So you do have to say that there aren't too many assets apart from Sander Berger, maybe Jack O'Connell. Perhaps someone might look at Ramsdale just because of age. That would be picked off. So they should be in a decent place to kind of bounce back up uh, after relegation. If they make a, if they make a smart appointment, that is. Sheffield have been so bad this season that they might have played their way into not getting picked off, which is actually quite strange when you think about it. Uh, a lot of teams don't quite have that that privilege. And if it wasn't a COVID season, for example, you'd look at Norwich last season and have thought they'd have the crown jewels robbed. But whereas Sheffield United, yeah, not, not so much. Yeah. Yeah, really, yeah, someone like Timo Pukki started so well and then managed to play bad enough for six months that no one wanted him and has been brilliant this season in the championship again. So yeah, Sheffield United might, yes, benefit from their shitness. Um, but I mean, on this topic, like Sheffield United obviously down, but in terms of the relegation battle, this was a pretty seismic weekend with Brighton picking up a massive result at Southampton. I, it was just a game that I didn't, even though Southampton obviously in terrible form, I really didn't have this down as a Brighton win. And I think all Fulham fans would have been watching that with a bit of a sinking feeling as well as Jamal Lascelles getting that last second equaliser against Aston Villa. It was not a good weekend for Fulham. Yeah, I have to say, so I, I had been a bit worried about Brighton. I think pretty much their they're the neutrals' favourite this season, apart from if you're one of those kind of like anti-football gammons who thinks, you know, then the neutrals uh, the most hated team because they're too hipster. But uh, looking at their last 10, right, in their last 10 games of the season, Brighton play United, Everton, Chelsea, Wolves, Leeds, West Ham, City and Arsenal. Wow. Uh, and I think the only two, I think I've only left out like two fixtures there. So that's eight of the 10 teams they're playing. So the fact that they won today was huge like huge because I mean even even amongst those teams Wolves and Leeds right they're both mid-table teams but they're both on their day like completely capable uh, of batting a team like Brighton aside so the fact they won today was absolutely huge but another thing that caught my attention was just this continuing slump from Southampton I know they had their injury crisis but good lord they are poor yeah I mean four points from their last 12 available games since they beat Liverpool Four points wow. from 12 uh, games. I mean, that is really bad, isn't it? That is shocking. Hassan Hussel, I mean, he's clearly a very good manager. Obviously did excellently at RB Leipzig and has done really well at Southampton, all things considered. But yeah, I think there's definitely I mean, some causes for grievance there. Yeah, we've spoken about this before, that Southampton are kind of like the the lesser version of Liverpool in almost every way. And so they play a similar brand of football. They've got kind of like a lesser evolved version of manager. And then they've had a, they've, but they've actually had a worse injury crisis. So it's not entirely surprising. Like they, they've lost like practically their whole starting 11 over the last few months. Like it's been really bad. And because of the high intensity game they play, they just could never afford to have such a thin squad. Like, so they've been at the, the injuries in the same way that they have such a bad effect with Liverpool. They've had such a bad effect on Southampton. And so I just, I, I just hope 
they stick with him. I mean, they stick with Hasenhutl, and I'm sure they will because they stuck with him before when they were going through tough times. But this is a squad who like, they showed at the start of the season when everyone's fit, when they're fresh, they were brilliant. Like everyone was saying, Southampton were going to push for Europe, and now yeah. obviously it's all fallen apart catastrophically. But I do just think, as with Liverpool, get your players fit, get rested, and I'm sure they'll be back to being very good. Just to round out our current affairs, a quick word on Syria, where we did a podcast about this league. I think two or three weeks ago on the basis that it was the most competitive uh, league in Europe. Which of course you all listen to no and you all love. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, every, everyone remembers that classic. Um, but yeah, Inter have now moved nine points clear of Milan in second and 10 clear of Juve who hold the game in hand. But I would not have the same confidence around Juve uh, winning any given game they've got. So looks like the title is finally going to somewhere else other than Juve. But there is the kind of leering... Uh, ghost of financial difficulties over Inter's head, isn't there, Alex? Yeah, their owners, um, Sunning, who are a Chinese-based conglomerate, have basically been told by the Chinese government to, fo- to forget about their football operations and to focus instead on the football on the on the footfall um, in their retail sector. Um, <laughs> you made that as hard for you as I possible. Know, I know, yeah, exactly. Ter- no football, more footfall. footfall. Um, <laughs> the alliteration there just got the better of me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they basically um, had had to shut down their operation, their football operation in China, uh, in Zhangzhou, um, in the Chinese Super League, who actually won the league uh, most recently. So they've shut them down over the last three years. There. So I mean, and so that that's no small matter as well. I mean, shutting down the champions yeah. of, of of the league. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. I think Inter is their um, prize asset um, in their football sort of empire, but. On the business side of things, their share price has halved in the last three years. Their obviously COVID nineteen has hit their business, has hit their retail business really hard. Their property investments tanked, and they're now having to get. Um, and one of their rescue plans with the, one of another big Chinese company sort of backfired. So yeah, they're looking in a bit of a sticky predicament. Apparently, there's a potential investment from an American company called Fortress. But yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how they go from here after the success of the potentially winning Serie A. Running in, running in, running in. Running in circles. Okay, so now we can move into our main topic of the podcast, which is looking at the Premier League top four race. I mean, most of this season is now really boring. I think everyone's sick and tired of Premier League football, but... The race for Champions League football is actually still reasonably interesting. There is seven teams in with a shout. I mean, well, Manchester City have made it and then Liverpool are right on the borderline. But you've definitely got six teams for three places, maybe seven. It's a really interesting race. So what we're going to do is we're going to look through all the teams, say why we think they could make it, say why, why they might fail to do so, and then say what they need to do in the transfer market to either solidify their place in the top four or make a push for it next season. So first team we're going to discuss is Manchester United. Yeah, so at, at present, Man U sit uh, second in the table with 57 points. That puts them at present nine points clear of West Ham in fifth, although West Ham do have a game in hand. So United look pretty nailed on for top four. And that's kind of come off the back of a good attack, really. I believe they've had the second best attack in the league, and that's kind of uh, backed up by the, uh, well, Actually, I'm going to come on to this. Their XG is is interesting. But another real strength of theirs this season actually has been their squad depth. Basically, you you look at United and in most positions, they have two serviceable players. I mean, like Dan James and Scott McTominay are not world beaters, but in a kind of congested season like this, they'll they'll do uh, well enough. And they take the second most shots per game after Man City. So, you know, overall, it's, it's, it's looking relatively promising for them. Yeah, they're just... They're just annoying, aren't they? Does anyone else get annoyed by Manchester United as a club in general? I just, like, every time I watch them, I'm like, this is not a very good team. 
and they just consistently get results. Like I just never, I never enjoy watching them play. And I'm never, they, they just never do anything that you're really like. Apart from like Bruno Fernandes is quite fun to watch because he's really good. Like the rest of it is just all a bit, oh, like, like come on, do something better. Anyone else agree yeah, with that? I just mean, me. I like Luke <laughs> no, no, Shaw a lot I, I, for them. I, I, he's I, a promising. True. He, yeah. He's a sort of. Um, Turn into a real player. Yeah, really exciting person to, pl- to watch for play for them. He looks their most attacking threat almost in every game I see for them now. I also weirdly like Scott McTominay as well. <laughs> but I know what you mean. He, he's 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 quite a throwback player. Yes, very but much. A sort of I think, just roaming around the midfield, smashing into people. I quite enjoy yeah, that. He plays exactly. plays football in like layman's terms. You know, he yeah. runs a lot. He, it's like he's always, there's, there's nothing complex about Scott McTominay's game. But you know, he's mm. he's effective. Uh, I don't know. Well, the, the, I think I, mean, I think I think the thing about complex games is exactly what's missing from United's play generally. I think that's why they're not that fun to watch because although they've got some brilliant players and great on the counter attack, there's. It's just kind of free form. And so one of the things is United are the biggest XG over performers in the league, which means that like if the average, you know, average player, average team is taking the shots United have, they would have 8.6 goals fewer than United do. And usually that means either you've got an unreal striker who finishes at like a above average rate or you're getting kind of lucky. And United don't really have an unreal finisher. I mean, Martial has his day, but is inconsistent. So <laughs> is Rashford. And Bruno Fernandes is good, but like a lot of the time he's either taking it from the penalty spot or 25 yards out. Uh, and so, you know, that would suggest to me that they are getting kind of lucky and that's backed up by recent form where in the last six games in all competitions they've only scored four goals and that's why they're kind of pretty boring because when someone's not smacking one from 25 yards they actually often you know don't really have much to offer yeah I mean last night was like kind of the eight the, the, well, not the, eight, the typical Manchester United game like playing against West Ham West Ham came looking to sit deep because they knew that the only way United can really hurt you is on the counter so it was just a nothing game for 50 minutes then West then United score an own goal from a corner and so West Ham are forced to kind of you know come out and try play and then United started ripping them apart on the counter because it's the only thing they do well so it was just like watching it it's like I feel like I've seen this game a million times before like and, and David mm. Moyes got a lot of stick for his initial team selection, which I thought was slightly strange because West Ham's game was very much going to plan there. Like he knew that the way United hurt you is on the counter, so you set up your team to not get counted on. And if they hadn't scored their own goal from a corner, they probably would have got a nil-nil draw out of that, which is a really good result. And as soon as he changed well, it to bring on their more attacking players, they got shredded on the counter like four or five times. No, I completely agree. I mean, you look at their team and the idea was congest the middle with three central central midfielders so Bruno doesn't have space and then play five at the back with, you know, so you can have a, a, a right back and a right centre back playing against Marcus Rashford. I mean, it kind of makes sense intuitively. And I mean, another thing that kind of uh, is a big problem at United is that they have the eighth best defence in the league mm-hmm. and this is supported by their XG and so David De Gea for example is having like a slightly above average league like he's overperforming his his numbers uh, which is you know what you expect from a good goalkeeper but not well enough to kind of you know justify uh, how kind of porous their defence has been uh, and so you know one of the things I'm going to talk about in terms of what United needs to take them to the next level is they need just a new central defensive midfielder. I mean, like Scott McTominay and Fred are forming an okay like duo, but they kind of to, to, the two of them together do what a one really good player should be able to do. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Although I I think last night, especially Harry Maguire, really impressed me. I think I think they're you know that they're, they're they've got building blocks there. But I do agree. They probably need to sprinkle a, sprinkle a stardust there. Alex, you have mm. you have you have seventy million pounds to spend. Who are you signing for Manchester United? Mm, maybe another centre half to go alongside Maguire, and I think they would have a really really solid back five then. Mm. Um, yeah. mm. You know they need to try and they need to get more out of Pogba, don't they? Let's be real. 
Like, it's always do, you think, do you think he's staying around? Well, I mean, yeah. if they, well, I mean, he's kind of being frozen out of the team, isn't he? But, um, who could, who, who, no one can afford him, so he's going to stay. About, what about someone like Nicola yeah. Barella from uh, Inter Milan? He'd be great. Well, you struggle you, you to get out. So actually, I mean, I looked into a couple of players I thought would be would be good for United. And so for me, one thing I think United do need, less so than a DM, but they still do need, is a striker. And the kind of the two obvious names are Haaland, who I'm sure every <laughs> club in Europe would love, as we discussed We never previously. speak about him on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and Lukaku, who I think it's really funny because if they hadn't sold Lukaku, they would be desperate for Lukaku, yeah, um, who's another someone mentioned. But I thought I'd look at a slightly less obvious option, which I thought would be Duvan Zapata, who's a striker for Atalanta. I mean, so he's 29 years old. But one of the things I found is that United have the fourth youngest team in the league. I think the average age of their squad is like 24 and a half or, or something in that, in that range. So I don't think buying a 29-year-old necessarily matters because people often forget you have to actually win in the here and now to make your team better. Like, you know, it's all well and good having a bunch of good young players, but, you know, you need to win this season and next season. And then, you know, in three seasons time, Scott, Scott McTominay and, and Mason Greenwood and Rashford will be old enough to be like world-class, but, I, uh, you know. in Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think with Zapata, like, he's been very good for a couple years now. I think there's, there's always a slight, you know, warning with signing Atalanta players in that they play such a specific and such a weird style. Especially if you're a striker, you're getting a lot of chances created for you, like because of the way Gasparini's team play. And I, I, I would be, I'd find it surprising if United went for a player like Zabata, just because he's only had two years of being a being a kind of top level player. I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced. He also had a really catastrophic well, injury recently. Um, well, in fairness to Zabata, I get what you mean. I mean, Atalanta do play a, a pretty specific style, but at the same time, his game seems incredibly well-rounded. And I mean, let's look at a few of his numbers. So in 75 starts since he arrived at Atalanta three seasons ago, he has 70 goals and assists in the league which is crazy. He's got nine goals and seven assists this season alone. Uh, and like, you know, you look at his numbers and he's good. He's good at dribbling. He's good at, he passes a good amount. He's great in the air. So I think he's a really brilliant all round forward. And I think he's only got two years left on his contract. So he'd be a lot more affordable than someone like, you know, Haaland or whatever. And so at which point then you can invest more money in someone like Wilfred Ndidi mm. at, at DM. Or the other person I tipped is, it's interesting you say Barella bit all, but like Manuel Locatelli, who's a centre mid at Sassuolo, who is, you know, apparently he's a nailed on starter for Italy he has got amazing numbers for passing he tackles like and intercepts like four times a game so you know similar to some like a Declan Rice or whatever uh, so you know I, I think you know United could be smart about their allocation of assets or they could just do what they always or do or they could be United the sh- yeah and yeah, spend, exactly. eight, spend what, 100 million on Jaden Sancho <laughs> <laughs> yeah what, what's the shiniest young bright thing around in this league but uh, so I mean all in all I think United are almost certainly going to get top yeah, four and yeah, I think well. they will likely come second unless Tuckle's pesky blues keep up this <laughs> championship winning form uh, so all in all yeah I mean I think there's there's grounds for improvement but yeah it's, it's pretty optimistic fairly uninteresting a more interesting team Leicester yes Leicester I mean before this weekend I was a little bit concerned about how they would um, sort of be looking with Mar- Madison and Barnes out they're two of their main creators two of their top three goals and assist um Scorers, I don't know what you call it. Assi- two, 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 <laughs> assi- assisters, assisters, yeah, goalers, no, goal, goal scorers, doing it for themselves, goalers. <laughs> um, but I mean, Ian Atro looked so good um, on Sunday that that's real grounds for optimism. And I think their sort of um, formation they played yesterday as well was really, really solid with the three at the back, having got Soyuncu, um, Evans, and Fafana all back fit. That is a really solid base to build from. That's really Ricardo good, yeah. Pereira on the right hand side as well. He was, you know, electric last year. I'd love to see him getting back to his best. I think that's definitely something that 
could happen and Castagna looks very solid on the left hand side and then the midfield double pivot of um, T. Elements and Ndidi is so 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 effective as obviously you just mentioned Ndidi there for United he's just an absolute beast in the midfield he's played you know he's been back, he missed quite a large chunk of this season with injury but he already has um the most tackles and interceptions of any Leicester player and is in the top 1% of all players in Europe's top five leagues for tackles per 90. So, you know, he's just such a good destructor um, in that midfield. And then T. Elements, you know, he has that he has that X factor and he's looked superb since he signed from, um, from Anderlecht. Yeah, they're a great team. A couple of things I find really interesting about Leicester. One is Jamie Vardy has gone off the boil goal scoring wise a little bit this season. I know he's got like, a fair amount. He's 12, got like twelve goals, he's, he's, but I think six, five or six, six penalties. Yeah, yeah, penalties. So he's got a little bit off the boil in terms of goal scoring. But last few weeks, he's been getting quite a lot of assists, and his like create creativity wise against Sheffield United was really good. Got a really good assist for Iheanacho, and it would just be interesting. You know, he's thirty four years old, a striker whose game is based massively around pace. Like it would be interesting to see if he can develop his game slightly. Well, I was just wondering, um, I mean, Alex, I mean, you were looking into Leicester and I was wondering whether you thought Iniacho is ready to start kind of stepping up and replacing Vardy as his kind of injuries increase and his game time has to lessen or do you think they need to look outwards and, and sign someone to replace Vardy? I think they definitely need to sign someone else to replace Vardy and that is something that the club have said themselves they are looking into. I think Iniacho, you know, he was excellent yesterday but, you know, one swallow doesn't make a spring, um, so he needs to Ooh. he needs to stole that one off Barry Glenn. That, stole that one ladies off Barry and Glenn gentlemen, <laughs> at, at, at Bidwell Alex, you want more of that? Yeah, yeah that's where you're, that's where you're finding those it. beautiful um, metaphors. Um, but yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Pies, I'd be interested to see what you think about this. What do you think Tammy Abraham would be like at Leicester? Well, yeah. So two things on this. Firstly, I think I saw um, a very interesting point, which was that. Lots of people are, it's a bit, lots of people are acting quite surprised that um, Grealish, Shaw, Iheanacho, a load of others are suddenly looking like they're playing a lot better. Um, and it's also it's, it's not that surprising because they are theoretically peaking. Like they're all all of those players are coming to, around the age of 24, 25. Um, because we kind of forget that you know a lot of these players burst onto the scene at a really young age, like especially like someone like Luke Shaw seems like he's been around for absolutely years. But it's probably not that surprising that these players are starting to play a bit better now, as they've just got you know more experience under their belt, getting solid runs in the side, and so that like as as they get older, they're getting better. So I think that's interesting. I just think it applies to Iheanacho. Like we expect a lot of him because it seems like he's been around a while, but you know it just he hasn't had that much first team football, and now he's at the age of twenty four and he's actually getting a bit of a run in the team. He looks like he's starting to play really well. Um, I would agree, though. They definitely still need to look into replacing Vardy because, I mean, Ian Atcho, he's he's getting better, but you don't want to put all your like all your eggs in his basket, as it were. I think Tammy Abraham. We discussed this before. He'd be a great signing. I'm I'm a massive Tammy Abraham Abraham fan. I think he does Abraham Abraham, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) I think he does everything you need. I think he does everything you need a Premier League striker to do. He can run in behind. He can hold the ball up. He scores goals at like a like a very good rate compared to the like top goal scorers in the league. I really don't understand what he doesn't do that well. But Chelsea fans don't seem to like him, and Thomas Tuchel doesn't seem to like him so what do I know I'd love him I'd love it if he went to Leicester and he started doing brilliantly there I would love it <laughs> if Tamer went to Leicester um, but no look uh, so what's the, what's the forecast on Leicester Bidwell? where do you think they're finishing this season and, and, and into next one I think they'll finish in the, in the top four they have an eight point lead over West Ham and West Ham have a game in hand um, but after yeah. the international break they have Man City at home and then West Ham away so those are, those are crucial um, and then their running is yeah it's not nice. They've got Man United away, Chelsea away, and Tottenham at home. So, I mean, if they can get to the, if they basically need to make sure they've 
have secured top four by the time they go into those final three games. They've got a good run of That's fixtures in, in, bet- in between um, the game against West Ham and the game against United. They've got four games against lower ta- lower league lower table opposition. Um, but yeah, they need to really put they need to make sure they put away those sides and, and take something from one of the Man City and West Ham games. Well, I know Charlie's going to go on to speak about uh, Chelsea, but does that mean then, given their run-in, we think if any team's going to drop out of the top four, it would be Leicester? You know, last year they frittered away a 12-point lead over fifth place. So that sort of creeping doubt could easily come in again if they're in a position with three games to go where they've got, you know, three of the self-proclaimed big six to go. It's interesting. I, I, I definitely, after this weekend, I actually had them in my predictions for top four but Same. I didn't re- I didn't realise that that was their fixtures I think we'll probably yeah be able to make a much more uh, solid judgement after those Man City and West Ham games we'll probably know a bit more about them then um, but I mean as as it stands I would yeah I'd have them in the top four come the end of the season also, I think they'll just about have enough but. just one other thing to add is I think if they get if they get any more injuries they could be re- in real real trouble because they've had a really tough season with injuries um, but you know a couple more later on in the season could really really find them wanting um, especially if it is to one of their front two, Vardy and Iheanacho, because when they've gone to two up top, they look so much more dangerous. Vardy and Iheanacho combined superbly. You know, you know, they could have, could have been eight nil to to Leicester on Sunday. And also, when Rogers switched to go two up front against Liverpool, they completely changed the game. Mm-hmm. They've got two players who can play off each other. And you know, when you've got two players who, who one being as quick as Vardy, and you know, Iheanacho is not exactly sluggish, it really gives a defence a lot to think about. So I think that new formation of a three four one two, permitting they don't get any more injuries and get um, Madison and Barnes back fit and firing come towards the end of the season I think they'll be in a strong place and I think they are looking good for top four oh gosh running in circles running running in circles running running in circles running we're running in oh gosh so three teams down of which we all think are going to make their way into the top four. And now we're going to look at the fourth team in the top four, who I assume we also think is going to make it into the top four. So, you know, pretty bold predictions from us here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the fourth team inside the top four is Chelsea. Um, I mean, just a very, very, very good team under good Tuchel. Team. Very, very <laughs> uh, good team under a brilliant continental manager. <laughs> it's basically, Tuchel has just made this team which don't concede goals. It's, it's kind of extraordinary. Like, so Chelsea, you, look at this, you look at the rate they were conceding at earlier this season <laughs> and the number of chances they were conceding. believe it. Yeah, like what? Like what? We were neither well, up until up until the blip. They were neither conceding a lot of goals, nor shots, nor chances. And they just <laughs> happened to basically in pretty much all the reverse fixtures that Tuchel's done well in. Chelsea did very well in under Lampard. But anyways, uh, moving on. Uh, not bitter at all. I have not oh. updated these stats to take into account the Leeds game because I haven't had time. But <laughs> in the twenty in eleven games under Tuchel before the Leeds game, Chelsea conceded. 21 shots on target, which equates to 1.9 shots on target a game. So mm. this is a team who's not only not conceding goals, they conceded two in that time, one of which was Rudiger passing it into his own net. They're just barely even conceding chances. Like 1.9 shots on target a game is virtually nothing. So to put that into comparison, United over the same period in that so same 11 games they had 36 shots on target against them um, compared to Chelsea's 21 Leicester had 35 and in that time United conceded six goals compared to Chelsea's two Leicester conceded 12 goals so these are like two 
like the, the the nearest competitors and Chelsea's defensive stats are still off the scale even compared to theirs and you got to bear in mind that in uh, at the start of Tuchel's reign I was a bit I was a bit you know iffy about it because there was an extremely kind run of fixtures but now in the last five or so games Chelsea have played like United Everton Atletico Madrid Leeds like, these are all big teams and Chelsea are just not conceding chances at all mm. so I mean based off that alone they're pretty much shoo-ins for the top four because they've got enough quality to score a goal a game and at the moment that's enough to win every match but I mean I, I mean, I completely agree I mean just in reference to the, the Liverpool game I mean I thought Liverpool was, was so so poor that game but part of that it's just that, like this Tuchel team just like holds you at arm's, like, arm's length and just like you know you're kind of the metaphorical little kid cartwheeling their arms but you just you just can't um, you know you, you get made to look very very ordinary and you know Liverpool didn't have a shot on target until the kind of the 80th yeah. minute or something like that and yeah and so it's been it's been super impressive and my question would be is I mean do you think with a couple of additions this summer this is moving back into a title contest team or what I'd say is this season and obviously Tuchel hasn't been managed the whole season but this is a trend that's very much continued is it's a team who struggles to score so Chelsea's top goal scorer in the Premier League is a lesser spotted Tammy Abraham with six goals level with Jorginho's obviously scored six penalties um so the only teams who've got a lower top goal scorer are Fulham Burnley and West Brom who are teams wow. who are not really associated with scoring goals. So basically, Chelsea obviously need a reliable goal scorer. I mean, well, they've got Tammy Abraham, but he's not going to play. Um, so they clearly need the, the, the goal scoring department is an issue. And that's been fairly clear under Tuchel. That's still going on. Despite It looked like Everton was a bit of a turning point. Chelsea suddenly looked very fluid in an attacking sense. But then Leeds was kind of more of the same. A real lack of cutting edge. And as I say, because there's so much quality inside, it doesn't really matter. Because if you're conceding zero goals a game, you only need to score once. So they're still going to pick up enough points to come top four. But if you want to see a title charge, they're going to need to really develop in an attacking sense. It's quite good they share the goal scoring burden, though, in my opinion. Like, you know, you've got goals coming from five or six different players. That really eases the burden on the front man. You look at Liverpool now, when, for example, Salah and Mane, Salah, Salah and Mane God, I forgot to speak there, stop scoring. <laughs> and Liverpool just look. Salah, Mane, Chizzy, Salah, yeah. yeah. Um, Abraham. Liverpool look lost when those two aren't scoring goals. So I think it's, you know, you, I, I think I understand you're a bit concerned about um, Chelsea not scoring goals. Adding, a, you know, can you add another centre forward in the summer? Um, well, it's, it's true. Like, if you were sharing around the goals and scoring a load, it would, that would be fine. But Chelsea have scored nine less than Leicester, 12 less than Manchester United, and 20 less than Manchester City. So it's like sharing the goals around, but also not enough. So it's like, yeah, it's all, all well and good sharing them around if you're scoring more. But, you know, when you're relying on Timo Werner for anything, it's not, it's not great. <laughs> mm. Well... Speaking of speaking of not great putting the ball in the net, we then move on to the league's current fifth best team, West Ham. Uh, West Ham, who have got the tenth best attack, but have relied on a brilliant um, defence, which is the fourth best in the league. Uh, kind of in that classic kind of counter-attacking style that David Moyes has seemingly kind of cut, carved out of the two thousand and four five season and brought kicking and screaming back into the, to modern play, which he seemed to really struggle to do post leaving Everton. But yeah, it's been been very impressive. They're also the least pressing team in the league, like full stop. They have the, fee- the fifth le- least possession. They take the fewest uh, pressures in the opposition 
third, and they make the fewest tackles in the opposition third. Um, even Wolves, right, are pressing 50% more than them, which is, you know, the next, te- next lowest team. So it tells you how passive they are. But saying that, they are so well drilled, they are so competent, that it, it goes a long way. I mean, like, you only have to look at a team like Spurs just to go show you that, you know, having 11 great players, but no clear, coherent plan week in, week out, takes a hell of a lot away from a team. And, and having a great plan, you know, make, makes you very hard to beat. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really worth stressing how much praise David Moyes deserves for this. Just because West Ham were such a shambles at the start of the season. Like when Grady mm. Dean Garner got sold, Mark Noble tweeted that he was unhappy with the board. There was practically it was gonna there was gonna be a revolt amongst the fans. Like you were you were probably one wrong signing away from people turning outside outside the stadium, you know, burning pictures of David Gold and um, David Gold and Sullivan. So it's like they were really, really like shambolic, and now no one saw this coming. I'm pretty sure I had West Ham down to go down, and I think a lot of people mm. did. And so David Moyes deserves all the credit in the world. I mean, because also, you know, it's well, I'd say Rice and Suchek are brilliant in centre mid, but Mikel Antonio is not a fantastic footballer, but he is now, and so like he's turned these players. Like, you know, Craig Dawson is not meant to be a brilliant centre back, but he is now. Like he's turned all of these all of these players who you really don't expect that much from, and he's really maximising their talents. So David Moyes deserves like endless amounts of credit for this. Yeah, I agree. They also share the goals around quite nicely, which I enjoy. Um, <laughs> it's the only thing I like in football. Yeah. But what I was say, say, as you said, Paisa, yeah, David Moyes just found his best eleven. And that makes a big difference, mm. especially he's just mm. got a setback five that week in, week out. Since the January transfer window when Dawson came in, they've just looked really, really solid. And Rice and Suchek, just such a good midfield duo. I think when you've got that such a compact back seven for um, a team like how David Moyes wants to play, it just works so superbly. And then they, they still need to um, integrate Ben Rama a little bit better, I think. He's a really exciting player mm. who's not kicked on as much as people were hoping for when he signed for Brentford, when he signed from Brentford, rather. Um, but even players like Jared Bowen, and, you know, as you said, another example of someone who, who the hell was he last year? And now he's, you know, a really, really promising player um, in, the, in the Premier League. One player I thought they should look at, and they have been linked to, uh, was El Nesri at Sevilla. Uh, El Nesri. El Nesri. Right? <laughs> uh, That's what we'll be called at the London Sammy Stadium. Sammy El Nesri, right? Um, he's the second best Nasri to play for the Amers. Um, uh, no, so he's got he's got 13 league goals this season, 25 games, six goals and eight in the Champions League. And like, you look at his kind of profile on FB Ref, and there's, there's not a weakness there. The only thing is that he only passes 16 times a game, which is like very, very low. We're talking like, the player who compared similarly was was Callum Wilson at Newcastle. But I mean, they have like 43% of the ball a game. But at the same time, West Ham don't play really with the ball. So actually, I think he'd suit really well. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm right in saying that Mikel Antonio has got the worst, um, I can't remember what the stat to show it is, but basically he gives the ball away the most out of any player in the Premier League. So yeah. like, having a strike you don't need like a really cultured striker to succeed at West Ham you know someone who just runs around a lot puts mm. the ball in the back of the net like frequently is going to do well there um, he's and, and to me that, that, se- that seems exactly that seems to me what El Nasiri is although the only thing I thought is that he's currently at Sevilla who are looking on course for Champions League football again and he actually he was linked to West Ham in January but it may well be that he's almost playing himself out of their bracket um, so I don't know we'll, we'll see the other one I thought I mean like Ivan Tony. 
at Brentford. Yeah, I mean, I mean, 20, tw- 25 goals, nine assists in the championship. He's clearly brilliant. If I was, if I was, I think all Premier League clubs should be all over him. Like Ollie Watkins has like made that step up so easily, and I think most Brentford fans think Ivan Tony's better than Ollie Watkins ever was. So. Yeah, if I was mm, if I wow. was Brighton, I would be all over Ivan Tony. He's like if they stay in the Premier League, he's exactly the kind of player who could take them to the next level. The last player I looked at was a guy called Amin Giori. I mean, I don't actually know how to pronounce his surname, um, which is unfortunately <laughs> becoming a trend. Um, but anyway, the reason I, I looked at this guy is because the French league is, is crocked financially, pretty much. I mean, Nice slightly differently. They have a billionaire owner, but basically the bottom fell out of the French TV rights deal. So I think pretty much every French player uh, who doesn't play for PSG is kind of on the market. And this guy is a 21-year-old with 11 goals, five assists. But I think to honest, I think this is a, a good West Ham team. This is the best West Ham team that's been in well over a decade. And this is the best atmosphere that's been at the club in, in well over a decade. I would expect West Ham to slip a bit more towards up and mid-table, but a lot to be optimistic about. Yeah, in terms of things that might hold them back, it's uh, fans coming back to the stadiums, because it's <laughs> what's been fairly apparent is that West Ham fans make the atmosphere of the club really toxic, because the one game that fans had back in the stadiums, United, United <laughs> beat West Ham 3-1 really comfortably, so it's literally a 100% loss rate with fans in stadiums. So, basically... David Moyes at all will probably be hoping for coronavirus to go on for a little bit longer. <laughs> can we can we say that? <laughs> Sorry, Charlie Pye Pied- David Moyes loves COVID. Um, but that moves us on to Everton. Yes. I, I, at the beginning of the season, it does. Yeah, they're currently in sixth place. I was At the beginning of the season, you know, they made some really, really good signings. Rodriguez, Decore, Allen. I was thinking, God, these guys are seriously in the mix for top four. And after their first four games, you know, they'd scored 11 in their first four. They'd scored more than three twice in their opening four. But since then, in no game have they scored more than three. Um, but I think, you know, that's quite reflective of how the Premier League has moved as a general rule throughout, as a sort of trend. You know, the first few weeks of the season were crazy. Teams were, you know, scoring goals for fun um, but now it's really sort of for Everton at least it's kind of it's plateaued quite significantly um, it's the first it's, there's a bit of um, a bit of positivity around the club it's the first time in seven years that they've sort of been in the hunt for top four when that was when they were under Roberto Martinez um, I don't think they're going to finish in the top four like I'm just going to that, that, that's just if this was a sort of essay stating my um, thesis <laughs> in the thesis. introduction they're not going to finish in the top four Um but there is definitely a lot of positive to take from it. Dominic Calvert-Lewin, he's already scored more goals than he did last year. Looked really good. <laughs> and still better than Tammy oh, Abraham, uh, which, which uh, we, actually, we, actually, we actually ran, we, we ran a, a round of poll on this. Uh, 79% of you said that Dominic Calvert-Lewin would start up front no, for Everton over Tammy Abraham. No, no, this is not a fair time to raise that question. <laughs> Tammy Abraham hasn't kicked a ball in six weeks and Dominic Calvert-Lewin had literally just scored a goal as you put that, you put that poll up. If you'd, if you'd asked this last year when Tammy Abraham was playing consistently, it would have been a bit more of a fair poll. Uh, anyway. Well, yeah, if, my, if, if my auntie had wheels, she'd be a bike. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's a year later we, and Dominic Calvert-Lewin's now the second best English striker around. We shall see. Dominic Calvert-Lewin came in for a lot of stick from Everton fans after that the most recent loss to Burnley because he doesn't contribute anything with the ball at his feet was a direct quote I believe from lots of Everton fans so I'm still with my doubts I think Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a very effective player but I just don't think he's 
that brilliant. I think Tammy Abraham, if he was allowed to play football for his club, would, would, do, would do as much as he's doing. Um, and on, on Everton, Everton are just so extraordinarily Everton. Like they can't, yeah. they can't help themselves being Everton. So you know they'll give the bigger teams a bit of a run and then they'll lose to Burnley and Newcastle at home. And it's just like, what's the point? Like, they're, mm. never gonna, they're cursed to never finish above sixth. Yeah, I think that's true, as, as you say, about giving the teams above them a really good game. It's some interesting statistics about their sort of style of play. So it's sort of revolved around since, obviously, that um, purple patch at the beginning of the season when they were just banging goals for fun. Um, their sort of style has revolved around sort of scoring early and then just defending resolutely. Um in the last 10 games, they've averaged 44.2 possession, so it suits them to have less of the ball. And they've won twice this season with only wow. 29% possession. Um, in the last five wow. games where they've had 60% possession or more, they've won once. And Burnley on Saturday was another example of that. Um, even saying that, though, defending resolutely, they don't have um, extraordinary defensive numbers. They're, they're like in sort of mid-table for shots conceded, goals conceded, and then Pickford is you know having an okay season, save percentage-wise. But t- touching on that... He came off injured on Saturday with a, a reoccurrence of a bruised rib. Um, and Robin Olsen is also out injured. So they've got Zhao Virginia coming in. It's third choice keeper. You know, it's yeah, going to be interesting to see how he fares. I think that's a shame about Pickford because he's coming for a lot of stick this season because he started the season so poorly as he'd finished the last season so poorly. But I think the last few weeks has actually been really good. Like he's he's actually looking like a competent goalkeeper again because it was kind of getting to the point with him that he was almost kind of Kepper levels of unreliable, like uh, like underperforming his XG like horribly. Um, but now he actually looks like a really solid like an effective Premier League goalkeeper again. Well, has for a few weeks, and I'm, I'm actually quite happy for him because he was getting a lot of abuse. And also, it seems like uh, James Rodriguez is kind of finding his feet again. I mean, it's possible. I know this sounds super stereotypical, but like, uh, it was too cold. From Colombia and Madrid. (laughs) No, no, honestly, that's all I'm I'm thinking. Apparently, he hated the weather because because you look at the. I was just looking at his stats, and so he's he's in his last six or seven games to kind of I think two goals, three assists. But there was a run of thirteen games uh, in all competitions, uh, twelve games, sorry, in all competitions where he only scored or assisted in two of them. Uh, one of them was in against Rotherham in the cup, and that run kind of came over November, December, <laughs> it was, January. It was snowing at the time. Exactly. And Samba Hamez just couldn't handle it. So it's good that he's finally kind of coming back into form, uh, especially in a season that's going to extend him over into early summer. So expect to see fire fireworks from Everton near the end of the season. Just on that though, um, it's a bit of a shame for, for, for Everton because, as you say, Hamez Rodriguez had looked really excellent. He's done. It was so amazing the sort of impact he's had on Everton's um, supporting. Columbia, crazy. Their shirt sales have gone up by something like three hundred percent. But anyway, the point <laughs> wow. I digress. The point I'm trying to make is that without um, Rodriguez is currently injured, and so is Gilfie Sigurdsson, or he was, you know, didn't pass a fitness test coming in for Saturday. Without that number ten in the formation they play and the sort of style they play, they really are very one-dimensional. They're just sort of funnel every attack down the left-hand side through Lucas Digne, and Alex Woby filled in in that number ten role on Saturday, and it just highlighted the sort of malaise they have when one of their best creators, um, Rodriguez or Sigurdsson, mm-hmm. isn't playing. Also, something to raise with Everton is just how appalling they have been at home this season. They rank currently fifteenth in the league for home form and in in the home form league table which constitutes the last six ge- the last six games they rank 19th um and Jesus they're, Christ. they're on course they're on course for their worst home league campaign since 1957-1958 and that, that is a, really so, surprising but um yeah Must. i mean everton i think there are positives to take they need to be more um 
they need to play in a more positive style of play ultimately they rank in the bottom four in the Premier League for touches in the attacking penalty area and touches in the attacking third so just to give you an idea of where they play their football or don't play their football it's um yeah not not what great do, for their what, who, who who should they sign other than Tammy Abraham to upgrade on Dominic Calvert-Lewin um, <laughs> <laughs> Tammy Abraham's definitely a, a hot, hot piece of hot property this uh, this 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 summer um, I think this fucking part. Everton definitely need <laughs> Everton definitely need a right back. I mean, Seamus Coleman's thirty-two. He's made only made fifteen True. appearances this season, and Mason Holgate, who's currently playing there, is just not a right back. And it's just quite sad to see someone play out of position. And he's doing it for the good of the team. It's he's sad. It's sad. sad to see. It's the look, the look in Mason Holgate's yeah. eyes as he rolls across to the right hand what side. What I mean again. by that um, is just that he like. He said publicly, this isn't my position, but I'm just doing it for the team. And, Please, you know, Carlo, make it stop. Age, when James Milner was doing that for Liverpool at left back, he was like 33. So, you know, you're like, oh, good man, Milner, good squad man. But Holgate's like 24. Do you know what I mean? He should be given a little bit more of a bite of the cherry in his main position. Everton, basically, they just need they need a, a good player on their right-hand side, be that a right-back or a right-midfield, because at the minute, their options there are not great. Mm. Um, a couple of people that came up, in my research were Nordi Mukiel, who's playing for RB Leipzig, who's also been in... Nordi Mukiel. I've never been, heard of him. Oh, right. Yeah. The, yeah as, you'll, you'll know him as Mukiel. <laughs> Mukiel. Or, the, or, 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 or as Steve McManaman calls him, Upper McCannell. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so yeah. true. He made that mistake <laughs> genuinely about 12 times that match. <laughs> So many times, mate. You cannot tell the difference. Mate, mate, the best thing as well is because like Mukiele fell over for I think our first or second yeah. goal, and Manaman is laying into Upper McCann. like he's been terrible on the ball. He, he's he's all over the place. It's like no wonder you think he's been so bad, considering you think there's two of him. But like every time one of them does something, he's like he's like Upper he is covering a lot of ground again. though, despite his awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like there's two um, of them. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, Nordy Mukiele he looks really like a good option um, for RB Leipzig. Apparently Liverpool were considering him, but he didn't have a great game against them. So that prompted mm. football Twitter um, to sort of say Michael. He's a fraud. Must, yes, exactly. Michael <laughs> must reconsider. Anyway, he looked really. He looked like a good option for Everton at right back. Another one who sort yep. of came up who I thought would be a really cool signing for Everton would be Emerson Royale from Real Betis. Who Paisa, you may have heard. Uh, of him. He's Ooh. great. Yeah, yeah really, he got signed. Really is he not? Is he? Is, is he not a Barcelona former boy? He basically like... got co-signed. Um, by Barcelona uh, and Real Betis they both paid £12 million for 50% of his playing rights his contract with Betis runs out this June and Barcelona can secure him for next season if they want to um, but oh, can I mean, he, they? yeah but he yeah exactly but he's, he looks really like an excellent player PSG have expressed some interest in him um, defensively he's looked, he ranks really well on FB ref assists wise he's also solid and then finally the other really good option I think on the right of midfield is a chap called Silas Wamangitaka who plays for Stuttgart. Right. Oh, I mean, good for effort. Stuttgart. Well played. I've been yeah. doing that one all night. I'm going to execute that pronunciation. Cold, cold sweats lying <laughs> in bed last night. I'm going to say He's just a beast going forward. 14 goal contributions and 23 appearances. 29 goals and 86 appearances in his career as a right back is pretty good. He was a centre forward when he was younger. He's turned into a right wing back. And I think he would just be a really good option on the right-hand side in general for Everton. Right back or right midfield, I think he would do a good job and add some goal-scoring threat. 
I was going to say that I think I've heard Nordi Mikiela is supposed to be like very highly rated indeed. I think the only problem with him for a team like Everton is that he's kind of similar to that profile of Holgate and Godfrey where it's like half centre-back, half right-back. I think Mikiela has been like playing very well there for, for a while and it's probably got more, a fair amount more end product than those other two. But he maybe is like quite he's, he's not too different to, yeah. to what's already there but no the, the Emerson player that one thing really I'd just also like to say um, is also it, you know it's kind of difficult for us to do this because it really depends on how Carlo Ancelotti wants to play if he wants mm. to sort of tuck in and have his right back tuck in whilst Dinier rows forward and has that as like turning into a sort of midfield yeah. five or whatever or if he wants to make it more balanced and have fullbacks on both sides, then that really changed it. But I think those players there, you know, that's just me having a quick look on FB Rev. I had some enjoyment doing that. I've got to say, Emerson Royale looks a real player. I'm going to keep an eye out for him. Uh, moving on, the probably the last team who we actually think are in with a shot, um, a realistic shot of getting top four is Tottenham. Um, Tottenham had a strange season. They were title contenders for three or four days and then it all fell apart fairly spectacularly they've got the fourth best defense they've got the fifth best attack so that kind of gives you an idea that they're an upper they're an upper team in the premier league but not an elite team i think the kind of main stat that signs that stands out to me is they they have the 11th highest expected goals in the league so this has been a season of extremely good finishing and i think xg comes in for a lot of stick from people on twitter etc but tottenham are actually a really good case study of why expected goals is a good metric because anyone who was looking at Tottenham's basically expected metrics at the start of the season would have said, Son is not going to keep scoring so many goals and Kane isn't going to keep assisting so many goals because they were both wildly overperforming their expected assists and expected goals respectively. And the whole point of this metric is to say it's not just to, just to rate like quality of chances. It's so you can look at trends and if someone's massively overperforming their XG, you can say that no one's that good at finishing. They're probably getting a bit lucky. And Tottenham have been a really good example of this. Kane's assists have fallen off and Son has scored way less goals now than he than he was doing at the start of the season and like this is this is why expected expected goals and assists is an interesting thing Tottenham are a really good good uh, like a very good case study of it so I mean they're, they're, I mean I, I as I, as I say that they are an upper team in the Premier League but I don't think they're going to be challenging top four especially since they lost to Arsenal yeah I mean I, I've long been banging the drum of you know I think that the Spurs team is a lot better than it's given credit for or sorry or rather than it's giving itself credit for really by its performances but I think it doesn't help that Mourinho uh, was he, I mean I mean, like I referenced David Moyes Mourinho is another one of these kind of slightly archaic managers who is trying to you know trying to project his glory days into 2021 it's not not really working but recently he's going to let the handbrake go a bit more and this team has shown that like there's so much talent like I mean in fairness to Mourinho he's getting stick for not playing Bale more but I think you could see that after like two and a half years of barely getting a kick he needed time to, to get up to speed but the, the annexation of Deli Ali was bizarre mm-hmm. um, and so you know now that they're playing with kind of four attacking players and Dombele and Hoiberg I think we're seeing more out of this, this Spurs team and I mean if it wasn't Mourinho I'd say they'd have a platform to really build something but I'm not confident that they do. Um, well, I, I, a lot of Tottenham fans I know were kind of getting a bit crazy after they had those kind of exciting games against Burnley and Crystal Palace, was it? And, but then they just reverted to type in the game yesterday against Arsenal. Literally had all of those attacking players on the pitch, double pivot of Hoybier and, and Dombele, which is what we've all been calling for, and then, you know, an attacking four but they just didn't. They didn't use it. Like, like they they weren't playing like a team who had any intention of attacking. Um, so I think yeah, they reverted to type. Like there was a bit of a false dawn. This oh yeah, Jose's teams are going to start attacking loads now. 
what does my head in or rather and really like I mean I, I, you know I'm just a neutral but would like would drive me crazy if I was a Spurs fan is the fact that they sacked Pochettino after their results had in, in all fairness without question tanked like they were playing uh, terribly at the uh, early last season I think it was um, but then to not back Pochettino in that transfer market whatsoever sack him bring in Mourinho back him and then watch Mourinho play this football with this team while Pochettino you know, plays with uh, uh, you know, the toys at PSG. Like, you can't help but look at this team and think how good it would probably be if, if Pochettino got a fair crack at the whip. Because you know, that team under Pochettino had got a bit stagnant, but then you add in a Bale you know, um, and Dombele, a bit of depth in, in those attacking positions, Regulon uh, and stuff like that. And you know, it's, I'd be so frustrated that you know, they are going probably nowhere fast under Mourinho. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting about Tottenham... Um... And, to, and the top four race is having a look at it. I think there's no reason that they shouldn't actually just fully prioritize the Europa League. Because you look at the teams still left in the Europa League, normally you get a big fish who drops into it, like Chelsea or Atletico Madrid, who will then go on to win it, as, like, as we've seen in the last few years. But now the teams left in it, you've got Roma, Arsenal, one of Manchester United and AC Milan. Um, and then I didn't write down the rest of them. That's helpful. But <laughs> a, I must have I must have thought Rangers. they were the only big teams. Yeah, like basically the rest of the teams in the competition aren't big sides. Like so, Spurs will be looking at the Europa League and thinking there's a very high percentage chance that they could go and win that. And I think it's actually probably a more likely avenue for them to secure Champions League football than coming top four. No, I, I completely agree. Um, and that is part of what's making the Europa League quite an intriguing conversa- like competition sorry, nowadays, uh, is these kind of big teams dropping in and, and viewing it as their only route forward. Could make for the most B-Tech um, double ever, League Cup and Europa League. That's the two-thirds of the famous Liverpool treble <laughs> in 2004. Well, the one, those were the, t- the tournaments that Jose Mourinho won for Manchester United and still yeah. still his like the Jose and Mourinho the truthers shield. and the, uh, the Jose Mourinho tr- truthers still use this as an example of well he wasn't a failure at United he won trophies there well yeah he won the League Cup and the Europa League so like nothing, nothing too special I just think that would be actually quite a good thing for Tottenham but the, the thing is when you look at their squad, like I agree they have a good squad, but then it's like, okay, what do they need to become a better team? Well, they need, probably need a new goalkeeper because Hugo Ruiz is 34 and he's also not not a perfect keeper. They almost definitely mm. need a new right back because Doherty has been awful. Aurier is not good enough. Oh, uh, Toby Alderweireld is still a good centre-back, but he's getting on a bit and the rest of their centre-backs don't convince. Joe Rodon looks a promising prospect but hasn't really played much. So they probably need a new centre-back as well. They... There's quite a lot of holes in this squad. Like centre midfielders wise, you'd say like Hoybe and Ndombele are good options, but that's it. Sissoko, it's Sissoko and Winks don't Winks don't convince. Is Vinicius good enough cover for Harry Kane? There's still lots of holes in this squad. So they they probably need another right winger um, if they if they want to be challenging for titles. I, I know what you mean, and I think, in fairness, challenging for titles and being a nailed on top four, te- top four team are obviously two very different things. Mm. I think they're probably quite far away from being title challengers, but are, but should be a team who who you know would consider themselves nailed on for top four. I think the one thing with their defence, I agree about Alderweireld. I agree. Aurier is good until he isn't, and unfortunately, that's always his nature. But I think with someone like you know Sanchez, with Dyer, with Roden, it's really hard to judge centre backs in isolation, like outside of the kind of the system they're in. Just the way I feel is that if Sanchez was swapped with Soyuncu, you'd have two players playing 
you know, Sanchez would look like Soyuncu at Leicester and, and Soyuncu would look like Sanchez at Spurs, if you know what I mean. Like, they're both good front foot rash defenders, but because one's got a manager who, like, knows how to get their best and the other one just goes, just, like, go out and head it, mate. <laughs> you know, do, do, you know, do some defending. Then I, I think, look, I think it does make a difference, but I, you're, I do take your point. Um, but yeah, um, I guess there's one last team to discuss and we thought we'd do this briefly because we have given them quite a lot of airtime recently and that is Liverpool. Hello, cherished listener. Um, We just thought we would cut in here to say that since we recorded this segment, Liverpool actually beat Wolves on Monday night, which took them up to sixth place. However, they remained five points off Chelsea in fourth, and Everton and Spurs behind them still hold a game in hand, so we really still think Liverpool aren't going to get top four. But anyway, enjoy the rest of the pod. Bye. The last time you could say Liverpool are sitting down an eighth this late into the season was the 15-16 season, which saw us sack Brendan Rodgers and bring in Jurgen Klopp. So it's fair to say everyone knows it's not been ideal. Um, we discussed them at length uh, last week about their rebuilding, but we we're just interested to know what your take was on, Alex. Yeah, so obviously I am a Liverpool fan. Um, it's been a, obviously you know cataclysmic season for Liverpool. Everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. <clears throat> but I think now moving forward, playing Fabinho in a midfield is definitely something that Klopp should pursue and continue to do against RB Leipzig. That was made a massive, massive difference. The sort of the, I understand the argument of playing midfielders out of position. You know, it's about getting your best eleven players on the pitch, but across a whole season, it's just not really sustainable if you're then just weakening two aspects of your team so much. And I saw a really good point. I can't remember who made it, but Klopp's teams are so sort of specific to Klopp and specific to his style that when one piece of the jigsaw doesn't fit, it just causes a domino effect so that the rest of the team just stops working if you've got Fabinho in that midfield and we've got and Liverpool have got a first choice front six they can really really actually have a good season or finish the season relatively strongly I think the centre-back pairing Phillips come back and Phillips and come back is obviously not ideal but you know you just got to make do with what you've got available right now for Liverpool I do I do think that it's it's, it's slightly harsh on Klopp because quite a few people have been saying this like why didn't he just stick Fabinho in, like keep Fabinho in midfield but I think if Fabinho had been playing in midfield this whole, this whole season when everyone knows how he can play really well at centre-back and Liverpool had been playing Nat Phillips <coughs> and what was it before Quebec who, who was the other who was the other Reece options Nat Phillips and, and Reese Williams if they'd been playing and been getting annihilated the back all season with Fabinho playing centre-mid I think everyone would have been saying the exact opposite which is like you've got a guy playing in midfield who can fairly ke- comfortably play centre-back like why don't you just play him there you've got lots of centre-midfield options well, I mean, just to back, very quickly back up what you were saying, I mean, we thought Fabinho was doing a good enough job at centre-back that we put him in our in our team of the half season uh, in the debut podcast, which is still live on uh, Buzzsprout. Please go listen to that. Um, but um, I do agree. I think it's getting to the point now where you just go, look, can Fabinho do enough cover to, to protect those centre-backs? And the other thing is that I think sometimes you just got to go, you know, Handbrake off. Yeah, we might we kind of guarantee to concede one if you've got Kabak and and uh, Will, uh, Phillips at the back. But you go well, you know, if we play with Fabinho, Thiago further forward, Curtis Jones, and the front three get you know a week off. You go well, maybe we'll score two, maybe we'll score three, um, rather than this kind of halfway house team we've been seeing this season. Yeah, definitely. I th- I th- yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think it's just playing Fabinho. Sorry to go back to this. Playing Fabinho at centre half is one thing. Playing Henderson there is just. I, I never really understood that personally. Yeah, I must. I really agree. I mean? like, Fabinho really is okay, as you said. He has pl- he played it right back when he was at Monaco. You know, fine. He has experience playing in defence. Henderson doesn't. I didn't understand that experiment myself. Um, no, as for really Liverpool, agree. you know, goal scoring has obviously been a bit of an issue this year, despite Salah still being the top goal scorer in the league. But 
um, having Jota back is really important for them. I think he was obviously. Yeah. It's easy to overstate how good he. Sorry, it's easy to sort of like suggest that when he was playing in November that he was like some sort of savior for Liverpool. He's not. Like, let's be real. He's still he's still quite raw, and you know he missed some very good chances in his first start against RB Leipzig. But moving forward for the rest of the season, that is a massive bonus for him for Liverpool having him back. Bit more option in the front three, more rotation. You might see a little bit more of that four two three one that we saw. Um, but yeah. All in all for Liverpool, I th- personally, <clears throat> I don't think they'll finish top four. It's too far gone now, really. But I think they'll probably finish. I've got them here as finishing sixth. Hmm. I, I'd go along with that. And just one thing I thought I would add very quickly um, is that one thing I liked against uh, RB Leipzig is that people have been calling for Klopp to adjust his game. And the fact that our pressing has com- really struggled because... And our, because our defence can't you know, step up in the same way because it's not as quick. And so we saw the team drop deep a lot, uh, which I actually liked. It, and it was Klopp kind of maybe modifying his game a little bit. Yes, that is dependent on the other team being willing to, to, to play against you, which, which Leipzig were, but many teams in the Premier League aren't. But I do think in a season like this, what we probably should have done was simplify our game a bit. We acknowledge that we can't play with the intensity, so we don't bother trying to force it. And actually, if we kind of take the pressure off a little bit and actually just play as like a, a really strong counter-attacking side we could be one of the best kind of counter-attacking sides in Europe yeah. um, so I was encouraged yeah, by that I was encouraged as by that. you were in the 2017-18 season you know that, that, yeah. that Liverpool side was based off of like really great counter-attacking so there's just no reason why you couldn't play like that again um, I completely agree so that concludes our run-through of all the teams. I think what became quite clear there is we all have the same top four. We all have City, United, Leicester, Chelsea. I think we'd all probably agree City, United, top two. I personally would have Chelsea third, Leicester fourth. I'd probably go along with that. Yeah. Chelsea third, Alex. Leicester fourth. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So we've all got the same top four, as tends to happen. Not, not, not much room for dispute on this podcast. But um, so, I mean, <laughs> everything we said about Serie A proved true. And although none of these takes were particularly hot, um, it'll be nice to see if, if they come true as well. If they don't, don't please don't tweet us. We, we don't care. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for listening. Um, that's all we've got time for today. Tweet Alex Bidwell saying how much you enjoyed his guest appearance. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here, Alex. Thank you so much. Yeah, th- thanks for joining us, mate. No, thank you for having me on. Really enjoyed it. I'm sure we'll have you back on again soon in the coming weeks. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Please follow us, Running in Circles Pod, on Instagram at jponeil161 at Twitter and me at Charlie Pisey. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye. Circle. Circle.